Well, good to be with you guys again this morning. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Looking forward to uh, our time in God's Word this morning. Uh, a few weeks ago, we started a brand new series in uh, studying the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is uh, found primarily in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And uh, it's arguably the most famous sermon that Jesus ever preached. And uh, it's, it's probably common that even if you've never opened a Bible, you've probably heard some of the words or some of the things that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. But despite uh, the Sermon on the Mount being one of the most widely known or most well-quoted passages from the Bible, it's, it's also one of the most widely misunderstood sections. And so uh, we began our study a few weeks ago by uh, framing the Sermon on the Mount uh, in the paradox or in the, uh, the tension between uh, the difference between the kingdom of the gospel, Jesus' kingdom, and the kingdom of religion. And we talked about how those two kingdoms are the thing that is at odds throughout Jesus' sermon. And we're really going to see that super clear this morning. And uh, last week, uh, well, before I go further, when I talk about the kingdom of religion, what I'm not describing is a specific religion or a specific denomination. But when I say religion, I'm talking about the idea or the way of thinking and relating to God that is primarily based on our actions, attitudes, and behaviors being the thing that makes us right with him. That's religious thinking. And the, gospel, the kingdom of the gospel is something entirely different than that. So last week we began our study and we looked at the Beatitudes. And a lot of times we look at Beatitudes and we think, that is a great list of spiritual disciplines that I should pursue, things I need to work on, things I need to get better at. And I hope what you guys saw last week is that the Beatitudes aren't a a list of to-dos once you become a Christian, but rather the Beatitudes are a proclamation of good news about what's true of those who are in Christ and what's being made true of us. And so we talked about how the Beatitudes were a proclamation of good news for those in the kingdom. And it was good news because they were an invitation, a a beckon, a call, a lighthouse to those who are not yet part of the kingdom, that they might come and be part of it. And so uh, we said the Beatitudes are good news because they're present and they're future. They're about a reversal of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of religion. And they radically change the way that we relate to God. And so uh, we're going to continue our study this morning, and we're actually going to finish all of chapter 5, which is like 50 verses, so it'll be great, and we'll be here for just a few hours, so it'll be okay. Um, but let's, uh, let's read our passage this morning, and uh, we'll pray and uh, study God's Word. So let's read together. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom. Verse 20, that's going to be a a really key for our study this morning. Uh, Jesus goes on in these coming verses that we'll read, and he's giving examples. He's fleshing out that idea 
So let's read those, and then we'll briefly talk about them as we study this morning. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of fire or hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, remember uh, and, you're, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come, offer your gift, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while the, they are still together and on their way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. And you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, anyone who divorces their wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you've made. And I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven for it's God's throne or by earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head for you cannot make even one hair white or black and all you need to say is simply yes or no anything beyond this comes from the evil one you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a a tooth for a tooth but i tell you don't resist an evil person if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn to them the other as well and if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt hand over your coat as well if anyone forces you to go one mile go with them two give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you And you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Verse 48, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then he drops the mic. (laughs) Let's pray as we dive into our study. Jesus, your words this morning are not light and simple and easy, but they they are weighty, Lord. Pray that as I seek to... uh, reveal or shine light on what's true about them in your word as we study. God, fill me with your spirit so I know what to say and how to say it. God, thank you so much that you, uh, you, you preached the Sermon on the Mount, not so that we would be condemned, but so that we might have life with you. God, help us see the good news of the kingdom in your sermon this morning. Help us live in light of it. God, we need your help. We need your power. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I don't know about you guys, but I, uh, movie, movie previews drive me crazy. Um, I get really excited about the movie that's coming out, uh, and then the preview just ends, usually suddenly, coming 2092. You've got to be kidding me! 
It feels like it's a, a millennium away, right? I don't even, I'm not even going to remember what's happening by the time this movie comes out. But I get excited about the movie, and I don't really understand all of it yet, but I'm really intrigued, and I have some questions, and I really want to find out what the heck is going on in this story. The preview is not enough. I want the whole movie. It's the same way with the Old Testament and the Gospel. See, the Old Testament is like a preview for the movie. It's not a different story than the movie. It's just a part of it that's anticipating the whole. See, the Old Testament is designed to leave us longing for something more. It should make us feel that desperate tension you feel when someone is singing the beginning to the Chili's Baby Back Ribs song, you know? I want my baby back, baby back. But they never get to ribs. And you're just, there's that tension that's like, dear God, someone say ribs at the end of it. See, the Old Testament is a preview to the movie. It's the ribs at the end of the Chili's Baby Back Ribs song. It's what everything is pointing to. It's what everything is foreshadowing. It's what everything is longing for. This morning we're going to see Jesus talking about the relationship between the gospel of the kingdom uh, the, the good news about the gospel in the New Testament. And we're going to see Jesus talking about the relationship between the gospel and the Old Testament. And what I want us to see this morning, what we're going to focus on, what I want you guys to come away from our time in God's Word together is to see that Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements that the Old Testament sets up. And he calls citizens of his kingdom to a far surpassing righteousness. A righteousness found only in him, a righteousness of the heart. And this new righteousness of the heart leads to true obedience. See, righteousness in God's kingdom is not about trying hard to follow the letter of the law. It's about getting a new heart that sees and longs to obey the spirit of the law through the lens of the gospel. It's not about pursuing external conformity, but it's rather about an internal transformation that enables and empowers a true obedience to what pleases God. We'll see in our passage this morning that there's only one way that transformation happens, and it's through Jesus. He's what the Old Testament is foreshadowing. He's what everything is pointing to. So as we walk this morning through our passage and we seek to see that, we're going to look at three, three things. One, what does it mean when Jesus says he fulfills the law and the prophets? And secondly, what is the standard of surpassing righteousness that Jesus sets for entrance into his kingdom? And lastly, we're going to look at a few ways that we respond to what Jesus has said. So let's dive in. Verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, I've come not to abolish the laws and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So what does it mean that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. He's referring to this, this, uh, the, all of what's there. And earlier I spoke about how the Old Testament is like a movie preview, that it leaves you wanting something more. It's foreshadowing something that's coming, something that's greater, something that's better. 
The Old Testament is founded on a covenant God made with his people, the Israelites, and the law is a big part of that covenant. And God promises to be their God and that he'll be there and that they'll be his people. And what will distinguish the Israelites from the rest of the world, what will reveal God, what will, what will secure that covenant, is uh, what will show that they're God's people is that they live by his law. They live lives that are radically different from the world around them. And a lot of times we think about that as the Ten Commandments, right? But there's actually hundreds of commands in the law. And I think a lot of times when we think about the law in modern days as Christians, we have like a super negative connotation. We think law, bad, grace, good, right? Those two things are opposed. But Jesus and the New Testament writers don't talk that way. In fact, they speak in the opposite about the law. They talk about, Jesus says here, I came not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, to complete it. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans that the law is holy and righteous and good. See, I think the reason we have such a negative connotation about the law is that we look at it for the wrong purpose. It's like having a hammer when you really need a screwdriver. A hammer is a terrible screwdriver. It really sucks at that job. The same is true about how we think about the law. Namely, we think about it as a bad means for making us right with God. And it is. It's like a hammer when you need a screwdriver. John Stott says the function of the law was not to bestow salvation, but, it's, but to convince us of our need for a Savior. See, the Jesus and the New Testament think about the law in this way. They look at it like an MRI scan that reveals the cancer that's within us. The law tells us we're sick, like the MRI reveals what's true about the sickness about us. We need that. We need to know that we're sick. Otherwise, we'll never look for a cure. And the law, the job of it, the the reason it's there is to point out how sick we are and to reveal that we need something better. We need a Savior. And there was always this tension in the Old Testament. God's law was good and right, but who could follow it? No matter how hard you try, who could really keep it? There must be a better way. There must be a different way. In the midst of that tension, in the failing to obey, in the heartache, in in all of the failings of the Israelites, there was always a promise. One day God would fix the problem, and one day he would do it, and he would give the people a totally new power to obey. The prophets, as Jesus references when he talks about how the law and the prophets foreshadow him, In Ezekiel 36, one of the prophets, God says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. God is saying, I know you can't keep the law. I will change you at the very core, and I will empower. I will enable you to obey. That's the hope of the Old Testament. It's where the preview leaves off. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of that promise. He's all that the law and the prophets were pointing to. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells us specifically, he's talking to the religious leaders of the day, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's the scriptures that bear witness about me. If you believe Moses, you believe me because he wrote about me. 
Jesus is saying that he is the cure to the sickness that the law pointed out. He is the hope long awaited. He is the movie after a thousand years of watching the preview. He is the ribs at the end of a thousand years of the singing, I want my baby back. He's the completion of all of it. It was Jesus who would make us right with God by fulfilling the law, by keeping it, by obeying it, and in so doing, completing it. But instead of clinging to the hope of rescue, there's another way that we're tempted to respond to that insurmountable problem that the law points out. Uh, We lie to ourselves, and we believe that if we just try harder, we can fix the problem. This was the response of the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees. When it says the Pharisees and the teachers of law, the teachers of law, that's the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They made it their full-time job to try to obey every single one of the commands in God's law. They spared no expense at trying to do it, and they believed that their behavior and their rule-keeping was what made them right with God. The Pharisees thought that an external conformity to the law would be enough that trying to follow the letter of the law would make them right with God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells them that even if they could have kept the letter of the law, it wouldn't have been enough. Because God's longing for the heart of the law, the spirit of it to be pursued. Verse 20, For unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom. See, the Pharisees thought that what God wanted was more and more obedience. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying is that more obedience will never be enough. He says the surpassing standard of righteousness that he sets for entrance into his kingdom is not about more obedience. It's about deeper obedience. It's a righteousness, a right standing with God that is not quantitatively more, but is qualitatively more than the Pharisees. It's a righteousness about, that is not about the letter of the law, but it's about the spirit of it, about the heart of it. So that brings us to our second question this morning. What is this new standard for surpassing righteousness that Jesus calls for? Well, Jesus saw that the heart of the problem was the problem of the heart. And the Pharisees were desperately seeking to keep the letter of the law, but they were failing and they knew it even if they weren't able to admit it. And so what they tried to do is that they would intentionally tweak or bend the law so that it would be easier for them to keep. It was some like pretty impressive interpretive gymnastics that they were working out here to try to make it so that they could really try to keep it. And that's the basis of each of these issues that Jesus teaches about in verses 21 through 48. The religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they were deliberately interpreting the law in such a way that made more things permissible and made less things wrong. So they were just widening the scope of what was okay according to God's law. And they were doing that intentionally and deliberately. And they were teaching the people about this stuff. And Jesus in verse 17 and 18 says, anyone who follows these commands is great in the kingdom, but anyone who who opposes them and teaches others to do the same, and he has some real harsh words for that. Jesus here is referring, when he says this over and over, you see this phrase, you heard it said, but I say to you, 
Jesus is not refuting what the law said. He's refuting what the teachers were saying about it. He's correcting a warped understanding and a warped view of it. And as you would expect, Jesus is not okay with what's been changed. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount uh, talking in the third person about the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. He moves to the second person. He says, you are salt and light. And in the section we see here, he moves to the first person and he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. The religious leaders who are in the, in the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount here guarantee you they would have heard the change in tone that Jesus was articulating because he's talking to them. One commentator writes, Jesus appears to be concerned with two things, overthrowing the erroneous traditions and indicating authoritatively the real direction towards which the Old Testament scriptures pointed. Jesus correcting a warped understanding of the law spread by the Pharisees, and he takes it one step further by not just correcting it, but by calling citizens of his kingdom past it, past the letter of the law, into the spirit of it, into the heart of it. And I just want to take two brief asides before we dive in. One, how are Christians today to view the Old Testament law? And we don't have time to get into all of that, but I'll say this. We're not bound by the laws found in the Old Testament. We're not um, prescribed by them. But what we should do is look at them and look for the spirit of it, look for the heart of it. What was the point of it? What was, what was the underlying thing that God was trying to get out? And if you have questions about that, feel free to talk to me. Also, um, a lot of times churches take like months to go through the verses that we're going through. Um, and that's because there's a lot there. There's a, there's a lot in these verses. But my goal this morning is not to dive into every detail of Jesus' teaching on, in these verses. But rather I want us to zoom out a little bit. And I want us to focus on the thread that ties all of these things together. Because most often what I see happening as people study these verses very uh, detailed is that they miss the forest for the trees. They just zoom in on the exact minutia of what Jesus is talking about. But they miss the thread that ties all of it together and makes all of it make sense. That being said, there is a lot here that is not simple or easy. So if you have questions... And feel free to ask me about that afterwards. Send me an email. I'd love to meet up for coffee with you or lunch or to process or talk about any of that. We just don't have time to get into all of it today. But I want you to know I'm not just brushing over it. I'm trying to intentionally show us the, the thread that ties all of it together. So let's briefly take a look at each of these issues that Jesus addresses and see how the heart is at the crux of the issue in each one of them. Verses 21 through 26 Jesus says, murder is not the issue, anger in your heart is. The religious leaders of the day taught, that, uh, taught the letter of the law. As long as you don't murder someone, you're good to go. Just don't murder anyone, you'll be cool. God will be, it'll be great, right? Don't worry about it. And Jesus taught that the heart of the law was pointing to something else. That the act of murder is wrong, yes, but what's behind murder is a wretched heart that is full of anger. Anger is the fundamental problem that underlies the evil act of murder. The one who is angry is condemned just as the one who murders in Jesus' kingdom. See, anger in general is not in view here. The Bible talks about Jesus being angry. But one commentator writes, and I think just helpfully clarifies, Jesus' anger was towards sin and injustice. Our problem is that we burn with indignation and anger, not at sin and injustice, but at an offense to ourselves. 
I think the thing that really just like convicts my heart even further is that when Jesus was unjustly arrested, when he was unfairly tried, when he was illegally beaten, when he was spit on and crucified and mocked, when he had every reason to be offended personally by how others treated him, you don't see that anger was his response. He's on the cross being murdered and he says, Father, they don't know what they're doing. See, Jesus' anger was towards sin, not in sin. Ours is not. And Jesus says it matters. The anger in our hearts, it matters. Jesus calls citizens of his kingdom to address anger in their hearts with great urgency, not to brush it aside. It's not like I didn't, it's not like I killed somebody. And Jesus is saying, you might as well have, because anger is the problem, not murder. The examples that Jesus gives about leaving the altar and resolving your anger, about settling matters quickly with your adversaries, it reveals that addressing the issues of the heart urgently is more important than even doing religious things. Jesus goes on in verses 27 through 32. says, adultery is not really the issue. It's the lust that's in your heart that's the problem. The real problem is not simply having sex with someone who is not your spouse. It's that the heart longs for something to satisfy its deep desires other than God. And our pursuit of that leads to our spiritual death and the death of others. Therefore, we're to root it out of our lives with a reckless abandon, like cutting off a limb that has gangrene. Don't wait. Do it now. Whatever steps it takes. The discussion of adultery and purity naturally leads to the question about divorce. And again, I just want to reiterate, Jesus is not teaching exhaustively about this issue here, and we definitely don't have time to dive into the, like, the lengths at which the Bible talks about this. Um, and if you have questions about the complexity of that, please come ask me about that. Talk to me. I'd love to process that with you. But I, again, what I want us to see is that Jesus is not teaching exhaustively about divorce in this passage. Rather, he is correcting a warped view that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were promoting. And the religious leaders of the day were trying to widen and widen and widen and widen the acceptable reasons for divorce. In Deuteronomy, uh, the law talks about conditions for divorce, but the focus of those passages are not about the conditions that divorce is okay in. It's about um, the holiness and the importance and the sanctity of, the, of, and of marriage itself. Not about the conditions for divorce. The Pharisees looked right past that, revealing the darkness of their own hearts. And they focused on, instead of the importance of marriage, they focused on what made divorce possible. John Stott writes this, The Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, Jesus with the institution of marriage. The Pharisees called Moses' provision for divorce a command, and Jesus called it a concession because humans' hearts are so hard. The Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. Jesus took it incredibly seriously, so serious that the only grounds for allowing it were the grounds of infidelity itself. It's not about trying to follow the letter of the law. It's about seeking the heart And Jesus is saying marriage is incredibly significant. It's incredibly valuable. And breaking that covenant should be avoided at all costs. Verse 33 through 37, Jesus talks about oaths. And he says, uh, it's not about swearing oaths. It's about truthfulness and honesty. People heard, don't break your oath, but keep the oaths that you've made to the Lord. 
Um, this is not a direct quote from the Old Testament, but it's allusion to passages like Exodus chapter 20 and Leviticus chapter 19. But Jesus now says, you know what, just don't swear oaths at all. See, oaths are designed to encourage and ensure truthfulness and honesty. I, I love lawyer TV shows. I'm like a sucker for any kind of law show. I just like, it's just fascinating, the courtroom drama. Anyways, um, but in all those, right, everyone, you swear an oath in court. You're saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Why, why do they do that? Because they want people to understand the seriousness by which it's important to actually tell the truth. That matters, to tell the truth. But instead, uh, what was going on, instead of swearing oaths being about promoting truth, the religious leaders of Jesus' day had built up this entire system detailing when oaths were binding and when they weren't. And it had the hidden yet functional goal of being able to get out of keeping your promises. And so just keeping the letter of the law, the, the heart of the Pharisees, had degenerated into this system by which there was this in, intricate system by which you knew um, whether or not you could get away with lying and deception and when you couldn't. Uh, Jesus addresses this very issue later in the book of Matthew, and he's, here he's like reaming out the religious leaders, and he said, Woe to you, you blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You people are blind fools. They had just set up this system by which you could manipulate the truth, and they were just trying to work around keeping the letter of the law. D.A. Carson writes this, Jesus will not allow this game playing amongst his followers. If men will play such games with oaths, Jesus will simply abolish them. He's not interested in, he is interested in truthfulness, in its constancy, in its absoluteness. He says, just say yes or no and mean it. The manipulating of oaths is fostering lying and deceit. That's of Satan himself. Verses 38 through 42, Jesus addresses the question of retribution. But he turns the question on its head. You'll see, see the people had heard, had heard it said, an eye for an eye. This is a reference to uh, Exodus 21. But I tell you, turn the other cheek. The religious leaders of the day sought to follow the letter of the law by asking, how far can my personal retribution go before it breaks the law? How much, can I, how much can I do back to somebody who's hurt me before it's not okay anymore? That's how they tried to follow the letter of the law. And Jesus says, again, just showing the darkness of their hearts. Don't we ask those kinds of questions all the time, though? How far can I go before it's really a problem? How far can I go before this is really sin? How, how far can I go? How deep in can I go to this? Man, that's true about how we think about things, isn't it? Jesus turns the question on his head and he says, the question is not how much you can retaliate, but how far can you go to bear the, to bear the hurt of another to restore a relationship? Not how much, can, how much pain can you return, but how much pain can you receive for the sake of the good of another. In verse 39, he says, if someone slaps you, that doesn't need any context, by the way. Like, just get slapped in the face. That means something in every context. He says, turn the other cheek. And a lot of times people think, oh, that just means, like, turn the other cheek so you can get hit again. Offer, offer the other one as well. 
But the, the tone of what Jesus is talking about is not try to get hit again. The tone is offer the other cheek for a kiss instead of for another hit. Turn the other cheek so that you might offer another chance for restoration. In verse 40, he says, if someone sues you for your shirt, give them your coat as well. In Jewish law, your coat or your tunic, that was like by law, that was like an an inalienable possession. No one could take that from you. And Jesus is saying here, it's pretty unlikely that someone's getting sued for their clothes, right? It's pretty unlikely that that's actually happening. But the principle of what Jesus is talking about is saying, you need to be be willing to give up the things that you think are your very rights. You need to be willing to abandon those for the sake of the restoration of relationships in my kingdom. Verse 43 through 47, the Pharisees are asking, who is it okay to hate? Again, the people had heard what being taught about the Old Testament wrongly. The Old Testament does say, love your neighbor. That's in Leviticus chapter 19. But it never says, hate your enemy. And again, the Pharisees here are trying desperately to work their way around the letter of the law, trying to weasel their way around it so that they can keep it. And the question became not who should I love, but the question was who is my neighbor? And if I can just eliminate people off that list, then I can hate whoever's not on the neighbor's list. The question became who is my neighbor? We're only to love our neighbors, and they thought, therefore, we can hate our enemies. Jesus, again, reverses the question. The question is not about who your neighbors are, but about who are your enemies. He reveals the heart, the spirit of the law. Even evil people love those who love them, he says. Citizens of God's kingdom are to love those who are their enemies, those who hate them. Jesus did. Romans chapter 5 says, But God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him by the death of his son. God loved rebellious sinners so much that he would give his son to die on our behalf. And Jesus says, if you're in his kingdom, then you need to have the character of the father. The one who loved his enemies instead of just his neighbors. Jesus closes this great section in verse 48. He says, be perfect then. Man, can you imagine being one of the, the hearers of that sermon? Like that would have been the ultimate gut check. In every possible way, it would have been an ultimate gut check. You're saying the righteousness of the Pharisees is, that's their whole job to be good. Their whole purpose in life is to follow you. And you're saying, that's not enough? One commentator writes this, just as the Beatitudes make a poverty of the spirit a necessary condition for entrance into the kingdom, so in these verses, the kinds of righteousness Jesus demands would have left the hearers gasping in dismay and conscious of their own spiritual bankruptcy. Because when you read that list, you think, I'm guilty of all that stuff. I haven't murdered, but I have definitely been angry. And I may not have slept with somebody who's not my spouse, but I have lusted in my heart. The list goes on. None of us are excused. None of us come out of this clean. Jesus' words are heavy. Unless you're pure, unless your heart is completely pure, you can't enter the kingdom. So what do we do with Jesus' words? I think there's, there's a few ways that we can respond. I'll give you three ways and a fourth that doesn't count. The one way that doesn't count is that we can ignore what he says or we can change what he says. That's not actually responding to Jesus' words. That's just changing what he said. 
Jesus has some really harsh things to say about people who do that. But I think the, the three real ways that we can respond is that we can give up. Who could possibly live up to that? We could try it like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to just try harder. I'll just try harder. I'll work harder. I'll be better. I can do it. Or third, that we can acknowledge our need for a Savior and we can cling to Jesus. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. See, we don't look to Jesus as our example. We we look to him as our Savior. The one who was righteous on our behalf and who makes us righteous. The one who was pure in heart when we were not. The one who gives us a brand new heart. Jesus himself fulfilled the law, keeping it perfectly. And now he fulfills it in us by his spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 4 says this, that God sent his son in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to our sinful nature, but according to the spirit he put within us. Why does that matter so much? John Stott so beautifully writes, the surpassing righteousness that Jesus calls us to, the deeper righteousness of the heart, is possible only in those in whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and now indwells. This is why entry into God's kingdom is impossible without a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, a righteousness surpassing the Pharisees, because it is such a righteousness is evidence of new birth. No one enters the kingdom without being born again. See, without Jesus, there is no hope. We're dead in our sins, enemies of God outside of his kingdom. But through faith in Jesus, there is life instead of death. We become adopted, loved, cherished children of God, made right by the Father himself and his sacrifice. That's really good news. That's the best news in all of the world. And so we cling to Jesus and we we long after him. Like my kids, long they cling to me in the rain when we're running into the store. And always says, Papa, keep me safe. And I hold on tightly to her. And I say, hold on, I've got you. I will keep you safe. That kind of clinging to Jesus produces an eagerness to obey. And it also like completely roots out any religious effort simultaneously. Small wonder then the Apostle Paul who was once a Pharisee himself. In fact, he referred to himself as the most faultless, the most blameless of all of the Pharisees. When he understood the gospel, he viewed all of his religious behavior, all of the things he had tried so desperately to keep, he thought of it all as worthless garbage. Instead, in Philippians chapter 3, he looks on it and says, His new desire articulated there was to gain Christ, not by having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, by one which is from God that comes through faith in Christ. Do you see? Jesus fulfills all that the law in the Old Testament was foreshadowing. He is the cure. He is the answer. He fulfills all of the righteous requirements of the law, and he does it on our behalf. And he calls us then not just to, not just to existence, but he calls us past it. 
to a deep righteousness of the heart that comes only through faith in him as he makes us new people. And it's this new heart, it's this new righteousness that comes from getting a new heart that actually leads to true obedience. So how are you tempted to respond to what Jesus' words here? Are you tempted just to ignore them or to change them? Will you try to just try harder or will you just give up? Or will you cling to Jesus? You see how it's impossible to be part of God's kingdom without desperately clinging to him? He's not the beginning. The gospel's the thing that motivates and connects to everything. My question for you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a citizen of his kingdom this morning, how is this good news that changes you? How is the proclamation of Jesus' fulfillment of the law on your behalf, how is that good news to you? And how does it change your heart and stir up in you a longing to cling to him and to love and pursue him and to obey him with everything you have? How does God need to keep changing your heart this morning? Maybe you're a citizen of God's kingdom. You've been a follower of his, but you need to ask God that he would make you more sensitive to the spirit of what he longs for. You've spent your life just trying to follow the letter of the law, trying just to like not do the things you're not supposed to, but you've missed the point that you're seeking God's heart. You need to ask that God would give you a sensitivity to his spirit so that you might know what pleases him and you might pursue it like recklessly. Maybe you recently became a Christian and God is in the process of beginning a transformational work in you. And you need to ask him, God, where do you need to change my heart so that I might actually live in line? I might actually obey you. Ask him to reveal the parts of your life that are out of line with his authority and with his ways. Ask him to empower you by the spirit that he put within you when he gave you a new heart to actually live in light of that. And maybe you're here this morning and you need a new heart because there's no chance you'll ever try to obey God without one. Jesus came, he, he died in your place for your sins on your behalf so that you might have a new life and a new heart that he desperately longs to give you. Ask him. Receive the gift that he offers on your behalf. Treasure it as good news. Proclaim it just wondrously to others. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you that your kingdom is great news. Thank you that your kingdom overturns the, the world and overturns the religion. I thank you that you came to fulfill all that the Old Testament was pointing towards. God, we, that's such good news. God, we're sick, we're incurably sick without you. Thanks that you would love us even though we, we were your enemies, God. Not on our best day you pursued us. When we were running from you and hating you, you pursued us, God. God, give us new hearts. Renew our hearts that we might love and cherish and follow you rightly. Help us see how good news your kingdom is. Help us live in light of it and proclaim its goodness. God, help us to seek not just to try to follow the letter of the law, but to follow the heart of it, to pursue you, King Jesus. That only happens because of the gospel. Thanks for loving us. 
they love you back, God. Amen.